0: Let me take you on a journey to the coldest place on earth and its last and greatest wilderness on a voyage to Antarctica. Hello and welcome to A Voyage to Antarctica brought to you by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. I'm your host, Alok Jha. Up until the 21st century, the history of Antarctica as it's been written has largely been the history of the exploits of white men as explorers, colonisers and scientists. But that's not the whole picture. In this special two-part episode, I want to ask, how white is the white continent? My first guest is the extraordinary adventurer and pioneering explorer, Duane Fields. Born in Jamaica, Duane came to the UK at the age of six. In his youth, he was the victim of knife and gun crime and as a result of his experiences, decided to change his life and become an explorer. So in 2010, Duane set off on a 400-mile walk to the Magnetic North Pole and became the first Black Briton to achieve this extraordinary feat. Since then, he's lived a life of adventure, inspiring young people nationwide to explore the great outdoors, wherever that might be. He's currently planning two trips to Antarctica with his expedition partner, Phoebe Smith, and their We Too Foundation. That includes taking a group of underprivileged young people to Antarctica in 2021 on a specially chartered expedition ship. Dwayne's been awarded the Freedom of the City of London by the Lord Mayor for his work with young people. He's an ambassador for the Scout Association, the National Trust, the Woodland Trust, Ordnance Survey and he's also a Fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. Duane, thanks very much for joining us.
1: No worries, man.
0: The, the history of Antarctica, yeah. as it's told, is all about Scott and Shackleton and all these you know, heroic Hamilton, explorers. Yes. Yeah, yeah, who went there and some came back and some didn't. Uh, yeah. Braving really cold weather and ridiculously yeah. stormy seas and all of these. Yeah incredible stories we hear. We don't really yeah. hear much about people of colour who've been to Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, there, 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 there've been a few, but but really, really very small. Mm-hmm. I just wonder what awareness you had that people like you were going to Antarctica mm-hmm. uh, or had been, and, and what was the significance mm-hmm. of trying to sort of open that up?
1: So in my extensive research into the North Pole, I came across a man called Matthew Henson. Now, Matthew Henson was a black man who, in 1909, along with Robert Peary, went on an expedition to the North Pole. Um, now, Robert Peary was a white man who was the captain of that expedition, captain of the ship, um, and he took Matthew Henson out with him on this expedition. He fell ill along the way, and Matthew Henson went ahead and broke the trail, and you know left food cache, caches along the way, and he arrived at the pole first. It took another 70 years. This happened in 1909. It took another 70, 80 years before Matthew Henson was accredited with being the first person to arrive at the magnetic North Pole. Now, I love the fact that he did it. I didn't know anything about him until I, I stumbled across his name when I was looking into research. And what I found was instantly I started to draw similarities uh, between him and myself. He was an amazing carpenter, he spoke the language of the Inuits. He was a great um, navigator. He was resourceful. Uh, he was estranged from his parents. And a lot of these things, I started thinking, oh, well, actually, I'm quite good with my hands. I'm not too bad at building stuff. Well, I mean, I can navigate. You know, I'm not really in contact with my parents. And you genuinely start building these uh, parallels with whoever you start to look up to. Now, I haven't found many people who's gone to uh, Antarctica. And I think, look, we can't blame people in the past for doing what they did or, or for um for being a white guy from the military going to antarctica in truth the world is changing now and um i think because of the picture of the past there's a lot of people who still think that adventures like that isn't for them and i'm trying to highlight the people who have done it who may look like them or come from where they've come from and i just happen to be one of those people
0: you were born in jamaica and What was life like there and how did you end up in London?
1: Gosh, life in Jamaica was the best I can imagine uh, for a young boy or a young kid, generally. Um, I, I grew up in a place where I didn't have running water. I didn't have gas. I didn't have electricity in the house. Our house was literally four walls. It wasn't broken up into, you know, kitchen, bedroom, bathroom. We didn't have all of those amenities. Our bathroom was an outdoor space. Our kitchen was just an outdoor space where there was a fire pit, and that was it. Um, I didn't have much. We didn't have much. I just knew that the moment you wake up, you'd eat something. And that's it. As a kid, you'd spend the rest of the day outside. I'd be in the fields, in the forests, I'd be climbing trees, I'd be, you know, wading through through streams. Uh, if I got hungry during the day, I'd pick a fruit and I'd eat it. Uh, some people would argue that's paradise. I I would argue that as well.
0: And you then, when you were a small boy, came to London. Uh, what was the, how, how, did, how was that different?
1: When I came to London, I remember getting off the plane. I think it was Heathrow. And I remember we drove home uh, in one of my mum's relative's cars. And I remember looking out the window and thinking, hmm, there's going to be blue skies any minute. And I remember thinking, I'll see some fields and some forests any minute now. And we drove for about an hour, hour and a half. Um, I remember thinking, whoa, look how tall these buildings are. Bear in mind, I've never seen a house with more than ground and first floor. I've never seen a double-decker bus. I've never seen so many cars in my life. Um, We get to the house in Archway and sure enough, get out the car, start to move all the bags and stuff around, get inside. And I realise I hadn't seen any woods, any forests, any trees, any fields. I know they must be out the back. So I run through the house, open the curtains. And sure enough, the massive shock of a concrete space. It's a three meters by six meter garden space, which is just concrete. And I think to myself, surely this can't be it. It was a shock for me because as a kid, you assume the entire world is like the world that you know. You assume that the sun shines every day. That's the world I come from. After a couple of weeks, maybe a month or two, we moved to Palmer's Green. And now we had an outdoor space. We had a backyard. We had a garden I can use. And I think I spent, I, I, after school, I think I spent every single waking moment in that backyard. And on the rare occasions that I did get to go to the park, whether it was because an older friend or my sister's friend or a cousin came round, um, I, 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 it was like almost being back home just for a moment.
0: What people can't see on on uh, as, uh, listening to this is that I'm nodding furiously yeah. at uh, your stories of uh, <laughs> trying to find any sort of uh, blue sky festival in London. Yeah. I mean, that was that was an early rookie era, my friend. Oh yeah, uh, I've, <laughs> many. you know, but the number one, but 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 the second one, Archway. It's not very far from where I live now. Yeah. And I know that there's virtually no green spaces. Well, apart from Hampstead Heath, but you know that, yeah. that's that's but further away, and the idea of of, of there not being nature around for a boy who's living in it completely it must have been such a shock if nothing else oh it was to sort of think to think to yourself you can't just jump around and do these things fast forward to your exploring the, the, the stories you tell are stories of you loving nature wanting mm-hmm. to see it and being adventurous in that nature and it kind of Almost makes sense then that you ended up at the North Pole uh, as an adventurer. But but can you fill in the blanks? How did you get from that that boy who mm-hmm. kind of was was a bit sort of shocked about London to mm-hmm. somewhere so far away, so cold? Um, so, so I mean. The diametric opposite of what I imagine the like.
1: Absolutely. So I went to school and I struggled to make friends because I couldn't have a dialogue with other kids about the things that they knew. Uh, you know, cartoons, comic books, uh, My Little Pony. Super. T- I didn't know any, anything about these characters. I, I have no friends except the one boy that the teacher put me next to on my very first day. He was my only friend in school. And I remember thinking, right, you need to make friends. You can't live like this, man. And I thought the only thing I know and I love is the outdoors, nature, insects, wildlife. So I went into school one day into my infant school and I went through the we had these plant pots along one one wall and I dug through and I found some wood lice and I found some other creepy crawlies. And I ran over to a group of kids in the playground uh, from my class and I thought, right, guys, look at this. And I opened up my hands and there's a handful of dirt and creepy crawlies and everyone screamed and ran away from me saying, oh, you're nasty, uh, uh, uh. And left me in the playground by myself. And at that stage I realized that do you know what you know do you know what, Dwayne? You can't be yourself. If you if you try and be yourself, you're gonna keep standing out and it's not gonna be good for you. Just keep your head down and do what everyone else does. And I carried on from, you know, age seven, I carried on with that pattern of behavior all the way through my teens. Um, fast forward, you know, I'm now 19, 20, 21 years old and I, I'm still in that pattern of behavior where I'm just saying yes and nodding along to things and laughing at jokes that aren't funny, just so I'm not isolated, just so I'm not alone, just so I'm not the outsider. Um, and I actually remember the night that I made a a decision to do something different and not to do this anymore. And it, it came after I built this moped. I threw this thing together from absolute scratch and, um, I rode it, I crashed it. Um, I turned left. The the thing went right because didn't make it properly. I went home, aching, sore, scratched, bleeding, and I rebuilt it. And this time I sent my younger brother out to ride it. I was like, look, go go, on. It's fine. I promise you it's fine. Sent him out. And sure enough, it works perfectly. And um, he's a few minutes from the house and some boys push him off the bike and take it. And... Everything that I had in me, all my anger and frustrations about my life up until this point, it just came to the surface. And I walked onto this estate and I demanded my bike back, um, which was the stupidest thing you can do. You don't walk onto someone else's estate and and demand anything, let alone something they've just stolen from you. Um, and for the most part, everyone was like, I'll take it. It's crap. Anyway. We didn't really want it. Um, but this one boy had this one panel and. It was the most insignificant part of the bike. I thought, no, I want that back as well. It's mine. I've put blood, sweat and tears into this, literally. I said I wanted it back. So I walked over and I snatched it out of his hand. And as I've done that and turned to walk away, he turned. He, he pushed me. Um, I stumbled forward and I, I don't know if it was instinctively, subconsciously, uh, what you'd like to call it. I turned around and I pushed him back without thinking. And as I've turned and pushed him, he stumbled. And I think out of embarrassment, you know, people are saying things like, ooh, are you going to have that? He walked away. It couldn't have been more than about a minute or two. He came back and he he was walking directly at me. And before I could do anything else, I, you know, stood up to to kind of face him. And I realized he had a he had a gun in his hand. And before I could say anything else, he raised the gun and um I heard click. Now, when when you, when you're facing a gun, any any sound you hear could sound any, any sound sounds like a bang. It sounds like a bullet's coming at me now. And then he cocked it, and I saw a bullet come out the side. And he pointed at me again, and clicked again. And before he could do it a third time, some of the boys there that I knew by face or by by sight um, kind of ushered him off and said, "Ah, you don't need to worry. Don't worry about it. It's rubbish anyway." Um, I just remember uh, walking back to my brother, checking myself, being sure that I'd been shot, but I just couldn't feel it. Um, Fortunately, it misfired both times. Never heard of it happening. I'm so thankful that it did happen. Uh, By the time I got home, I had two or three messages, uh, missed calls and people saying things like, we heard what happened. What are you going to do? Are you going to get this guy? We think you should get him. Uh, I know where you can get this. I know where you can find him. And I felt, this whole world of pressure just fall onto my shoulders. And the truth is I was a bit cowardly. I couldn't, I couldn't face everyone telling me to do something. So I stayed indoors, um, switched off the phone for a couple of days. And during that time I thought, well, actually I don't want to get him. I just, I'm glad that I'm here. I'm glad the whole thing's over. Um, I just want to do me. And within that thought for the past 13, 14 years, I've been doing what I thought everyone else expected. And I lost a little bit of me every single time I'd lied and I decided can't do it anymore. I'm going to go and rediscover me and be that confident, you know, six, seven year old kid and be bold and do all the things that I want to do and that I love. Hello, I'm Camilla Nichols, CEO of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. We work to preserve and protect Antarctica's unique heritage from the historic huts of early pioneers to the amazing discoveries in climate science. And our mission is to inspire current and future generations to discover, value and protect this precious wilderness. The pandemic has had a significant impact on our work, but we need your generosity now more than ever. Find out how you can help save Antarctica, protect our planet and even adopt a penguin at UKAHT.org or search for the UK Antarctic Heritage
0: Trust. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Now, hearing you tell that story, two things. One, my mouth's sort of fallen open, and Mm -hmm. I've been on tent hooks to find out what's going on, Mm -hmm. what happened. I mean, uh, what a story. And and, and even hearing you tell it, there's a a bit of emotion still there in your voice when you tell it. This is something that's clearly there right on your mind. But to, Mm -hmm. to then snatch from that, Harrowing experience. Mm-hmm. To snatch from that this absolute ascendancy to get to places on Earth that mm-hmm. most of us will never get to, to be inspirational in that sense. I'd just yeah. like to know how do you go from the depths of that terror and mm-hmm. and emotion to walking to the North Pole by yourself, which is an amazing thing to be able to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it takes a lot of strength anyway. Never mind to do it from a point of point of uh, you know point of fear and 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 all of
1: that i wanted to do something to change the mindset of people like that guy with the gun um i didn't know what i wanted to do but i know i wanted to do something um a friend of mine a guy that i would got to know said i'm doing the three peaks would you like to do it i said yeah sure i'll do the three peaks so that's climbing the highest mountain in england scotland and Wales, and doing it in all all under 24 hours so I did that. I felt great about myself. I'd raised a small amount of money for a charity in the middle. Were you? Were you, were you a climber at the time? Did you? No. Were you, no. No. You uh, just
0: decided to do it one day.
1: Uh, he said he's doing it. He said, "How fit are you?" He was. Uh, I think he was in the army at one point. I said, no, you know, I feel like I'm all right." I didn't have anyone to uh, who'd set a standard for me, so I didn't know what fit really was, and it was absolutely agonizing. But I felt within myself. I felt. I felt spiritually good. I was in an environment that I was out in the environment. I felt great. Um, and following that, I thought, right, I want to do more of this stuff outdoors. I was looking for something to do. And one morning I saw uh, the news report. It was a news report with Ben Fogle and James Cracknell talking about their adventures of rowing across the Atlantic. Now, I didn't pay much attention because up until this point, these kind of adventures, are, you know, Atlantic mountains, well, I've always believed wrongly that it's not something that I do, or people from my background does, and I'm not just talking about colour. I'm talking about the people I grew up with on the estates, and my my estate was one of the most multicultural estates you can imagine. Or people from Jamaica, we don't do these kind of things. We we like to stay where it's safe. And the thing that caught my attention was in the next breath they said, "We're walking to the South Pole next, and we're looking for a third member to join our team." Instantly, so you got interested all these light bulbs and wheels started to turn and I thought whoa are they throwing it out there to anyone and I did a little bit of research are they really asking anyone what do I need am I qualified could I do it if they gave me the chance and eventually I I managed to to, to, to muster up the courage to even apply but I did this a couple of weeks later and they said look unfortunately the first stage of selections has started we can't take any new applicants now would you consider going to the North Pole and I thought I was born in Jamaica, a pole's a pole, ice cold. I knew nothing about it. And that's how the whole idea came about.
0: I love the fact that because you can't go to one pole, do you fancy the other pole? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it sounds I mean, so do you, simple, doesn't it? It's not It's not like you fancy just going to a different part of the town or something, yeah, is it? It's, yeah,
1: uh, but, that but restaurant's closed, kept... you to go to the next one.
0: I mean, it sounds like it sounds like being outside adventure. These things were in you anyway. But but, how did you start to prepare then? Once you decided, yes, OK, the North Pole is where I'm going to go, go. What did you decide to do to prepare?
1: So preparation for somewhere like the North Pole is uh, you need help. You need advice. You need support. I didn't have a clue what to do to train. I didn't have a clue what to do to prepare. I didn't know what equipment I'd need. I didn't know how to ski. I didn't know if I had the physical strength or the mental strength to make it happen. But um, I went on Google. I did a whole load of research, extensive research, five minutes of it on Google. (laughs) And... (laughs) I, I, you know, you type in North Pole and a map comes up and it shows you where it is and it gives you a breakdown of the animals and the, you know, flora and fauna that you might expect to find there. And then I saw a of people skiing. So I thought, right, skiing, I need to get some skiing in. And then I saw people pulling stuff and I clicked on this and it said, pull tires, that'll help you. And I thought, right, I'm going to pull tires. And the most the most embarrassing thing in my life happened while I was pulling tires. So I wasn't quite comfortable with sharing this idea yet. Because it was still an odd thing for someone from my background to do. It was still an odd thing for people to tell local people. I'd be sectioned basically. So I kept it secret. And um, I started walking at night in Happy Marshes, pulling tires. And I remember it was about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. It's dark, it's quite chilly. And there's not many people around, or no one around that I knew or would even pay attention to me. And I come out the park just onto the canal about to go underneath a bridge and I hear the scariest thing in the world. I hear eight or nine boys laughing, teenage boys. And I think, oh God, they're probably roughly my age, maybe a little bit younger. They're gonna laugh at me. They And I say, no, Dwayne," turn around. And before I could turn around, I hear one of them say, who's that and what's he doing? So I've been caught now. I found out, they've spotted me. In the next breath, I decide, you know, hold your chin up hold your chest out and just march past them it will be fine and i remember walking past them or walking towards them and i could hear them laughing and making their jokes and saying look how he's walking look at his calling me this sexuality and calling me that and saying this and and i started to shrink and shrink and shrink as i walked towards them and i remember feeling so small when i passed them and i could hear them laughing in the distance and they weren't laughing at what I looked like. They weren't laughing at what I was trying to achieve. They were laughing at me. And at that stage, I decided, don't tell anybody per se. Uh, do all your training in Clissold Park. At least that part's going to be closed. Uh, it's not as big, but you can, you can get it done. And you can do it secretly. And for that reason, I, I held off telling so many people for so long until I told a local newspaper and they printed it. The day they printed it, I had a phone call from a friend saying, "Brov, are you climbing a North Pole? I was so ready for an argument that I went straight into attack mode. And I was like, first of all, you idiot, you don't climb the North pole. There isn't something <laughs> there to climb. It's just a face." And, a go-. and I ranted on for about five minutes just because I was so wound up based on all the responses that I'd had previously. But fundamentally the training was a lot of cold weather stuff in, in, I ended up in Norway in the mountains, freezing cold lakes, just jumping into, you know, prepare myself in case I fell through the ice. I spent time skiing I had some shotgun training i did i I ran from Stoke Newington to London Bridge or to um Elephant and Castle and back twice a week um I boxed at the time, so i you know generally just to keep fit- I played football at the time because I tried to keep up with the the lifestyle I'd had before as well as stepping into this new one um I don't know if I was embarrassed by it or ashamed of the idea or reluctant to share because I didn't want to get all the negative opinions and I didn't want my mind to be changed
0: so, so I mean I'm, I'm your your preparation mm-hmm. to walk to one of the most extreme places on yeah. earth was mm-hmm. was a few minutes of search on google i want yes. to know duane how are you still alive i don't understand this is, <laughs> this is something that perplexes me from all the things we're talking about because it's not an easy thing to do just go through, tell, tell when you got when you started so you've done the training right you're, yes. you're about to walk 400 miles yep. to the north pole what was it yes. like what did, you, what, what did you what did you what would you think at the beginning and uh. h- how hard was it physically
1: well, first of all, let me just say that I, I think I was in a mental place, which was so I was so angry and frustrated with where I'd come to in life. that I, I had to do something. Uh, the human body is remarkably um, adaptable. Uh, you can adapt to absolutely anything, given the time and if you've got the will. And I think in this instance, um, will was replaced by frustration. And that's what got me through the North Pole. There were days when it got so cold. Um I think one report we had said it would feel like minus forty-eight because of the wind wind chill factor, um, and the fact that it was around minus twenty plus anyway. Um, so it, it for me a lot of it was willpower, and it's it may not even be willpower that I was born with. It might just be frustrations with where I was in life, what I'd seen, the fact that I'd lost a friend or two. The fact that expectations of me was so low, the fact that so many people laughed at me, it was a lot of I'm going to prove to people, no matter how hard it is, that I can do this. I'm going to prove to them that I can do this so they can look at me and say, well, if you can do it, I can do it, too. Um, And there's no way I could achieve that if I didn't succeed, if I didn't make this happen. I had two brilliant teammates. We laughed at each other. we made jokes to uplift each other. When I fell down, I'd, you know, they'd pull me up when they fell down, I'd lift them up and we just worked as a unit. And I think they are as much responsible for us succeeding in, or or as much responsible for me succeeding in that, that challenge as I am myself. Um, And what
0: about when you, mm -hmm. what about when you got to the North pole? I mean, were you, were you excited or just exhausted? And did you fall down?
1: Gosh. So I, I was exhausted, but one of the things I did to make sure that, i would get there was i kept conjuring up these images of you know crowds throwing confetti and fireworks and flags and banners at the pole which is it's not going to happen is it Uh, but i kept i kept filling my head with these images when it got really tough and um when i got there i remember thinking right there's nobody here there's no confetti there's no no there's definitely no fireworks no Uh, but there is that patch of snow which my GPS and my maps and my everything else is telling me is the bit of snow uh, that is, uh, is, our, is our, our, our destination. And I remember looking at it for a minute and thinking, right, it looks the exact same as the bit of snow, 100, 200, 300, 400 miles back that way. But it meant so much more. It meant, you, you know, I'd set a goal. I'd set the hardest goal I've ever set myself or anyone that I'd known ever set themselves. And I'd achieved it and I took a lot of pride in that, but I didn't understand how much pride I could or should take in it until, until I got back on the plane actually. And, you know, I was talking to someone on the flight back and I said, yeah, we were just up in the Arctic. I just walked in. And they said, you've just walked to the North pole. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just literally. And they looked at me and they said, "But you've just walked to the North. Nah. And I said, yep. I've literally just three days ago, four days ago, arrived at the North pole and They said, what? And they just couldn't believe it. And the more they couldn't believe it it was, the more I was realizing that this is a very peculiar thing to say. And the more you think about it is the more you realize that that's actually a tough thing to do.
0: Tell, tell us your plans. When are you planning to go, and what are you going to do?
1: So, first of all, me and my teammate are planning to do a crossing of Antarctica. Um, we did we did a similar crossing, at, you know, tri- journey the length of Britain to give you an idea of how far we'll be walking. It's about fourteen hundred kilometres that we'll be walking. Uh, but before we go off and do it ourselves, we're taking twenty young people on an, an Antarctic expedition, uh, which is going to be the first of its kind. It's this coming Antarctic season. And it's going to be a carbon negative expedition. So 20 young people from backgrounds similar to mine, where, you know, you're from a deprived area. uh, You never expected to go and see anything like what these young people are going to see. Uh, People who have very limited aspirational goals, where people have very, uh, I don't know, weak um, ideas of what they might achieve in life. Very limited in terms of opportunities we 're going to give twenty young people from across this country the chance to do something amazing, see something amazing, and feel great about themselves what well, What an
0: amazing experience what Just think back to mm-hmm. your childhood what what would that have done for you if someone had oh, taken gosh. you on a oh. trip like this and mm-hmm. just opened your eyes to things that perhaps yeah. you had never seen before? I mean, it sounds like you already had that thirst for the great outdoors, but just think back what would it have done mm-hmm. for you
1: Well look, I would have loved anything like this because it would have made me feel like it was okay to be me so much longer it would have made me feel like actually i don't have to be railroaded into this particular career the whole world in effect is open for me to learn uh, to grow to protect uh, and to benefit from um and to do it in a way that isn't damaging it but can also benefit other people as well it, now look as a young person, and I know this because this was my experience and I know it because I speak to young people all the time. I've spoken to thousands of young people over the last few years. I, I'm, you know, a scout ambassador. I was a manager at, um, at the Challenge Network. Um, I've spoken to them. And one of the things that happens is when you say to someone, oh, Antarctica is shrinking and the ice shelves breaking. That's just like, yeah, well, I'm here. I'm OK. When you hear one of your peers say, I went to Antarctica, I saw it for myself. We can do these little things to change our behaviours. It's now real. It's part of your circle. Actually, Joey or Gina or Susie or whoever down the road went there, it's real. Trust me. It's now a real place. It's a real thing. It's not a myth anymore. And it's not, you know, this this paper tiger anymore. It's just, it, it's a real thing now. And I think that's what's missing in a lot of the communities up and down this country. And I think if you live in a deprived area, it's even further afield.
0: Just on, on the issue of, other types of diversity so you know the issue of you know uh, people of color going to the continent how much do you think it is a case that um it's just those opportunities weren't afforded to those people or and how much is it the case that people of color now don't think it's something that they can do or want to do because it's not what their communities do
1: yeah so first of all my teammate is a white woman from north wales we come from two completely different worlds but we face similar challenges Tell us her name. Her name is Phoebe Smith. Superhero. Uh, I'm not going to, I would never tell her this. I think she's actually stronger than I am. Um, but <laughs>
0: good that, job no one's listening. Yeah,
1: good good <laughs> job no one's ever going to head. No, honestly, look, she um, she's a white woman from Wales. And the truth is, the barriers that women face in the outdoors, um, that some women face, uh, are very similar to some of the barriers that I've faced. We've been sat down in front of people and they've said, well, you guys should be happy with what you've achieved considering where you're from. Now, to me, that's clearly saying, that's your glass ceiling, stop there.
0: Yeah, don't go any further. Don't
1: go any further. That's exactly what it was. There are huge, huge barriers set up um, that were set up and are still in place. Uh, many of them are still in place at the moment. One of which is the barrier, barriers that our own community set up within our own minds and were reinforced by things that we'd seen externally. So, for example, when my great when my grandmother came to Britain, the plan was you work, you go home, you don't leave your community. You stay where you live, you go to work and that's it. Outside of that is dangerous. They were made to believe that by people outside of their community. They had uh, teddy boys who would beat people up if they were in the wrong part of London. Uh, they would they 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 would be um, looked at, spat at, shouted at if they got onto a bus which took them into a more affluent area, uh, they were made to be fearful of leaving their small community. And that that memory, that experience was handed down to my mother or to my, you know, aunties and uncles and other people's aun- and then eventually handed down to my generation. So there were genuine um, fears about leaving your community. Um, I think some of those fears are still alive now. And I think, when you look at advertisements, when you look at um, media, when you look at who uh, the people are who are doing these things, there's reasons to believe that 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 there's still reasons to fear out there. When you look up and you see it's always you know, 80% a strong male stood there at the top of that mountain, looking down uh, uh, into the mid-distance, that image there is very rarely a black person or a person of colour, uh, very rarely a woman. I think I did a straw poll a couple of months back and... Out of the top 100 uh, adventurers or explorers or whatever you want to call them, um, I think something like 26 were women and one was, I think, mixed race out of 100. Now, Britain is pretty much 50-50 men, women. So that picture there alone, and again, that was just anecdotal straw poll that I took. That image alone tells you that maybe there's still work to be done with with the advertisement with, with adverts with the images that we show with people who are out there championing these causes where the money is as well i've struggled so hard to get funding to do expeditions um, and i know other people who've done the exact same expedition as me uh they've instantly got um uh companies to support them now maybe that's me maybe i'm writing something wrong or maybe i just don't fit the image that they that they expect to or maybe it's that i don't know i'm not um i'm not bankable enough because i haven't done enough but i i I know personally people who have done just as much as me or just as little as i have uh they've gone off uh they've spoken to someone and they've got a meeting and then they've got some money to to go on an expedition so i think there's still some barriers there
0: so despite all of that you're still going to go to antarctica and make this 1400 mile trip with phoebe so tell us about that what's the what's the Plan for that. Where where are you going to go, mm-hmm. and kind of what what is it that you also want to sort of highlight yeah. during that in terms of either either your your hardiness or is it a mm-hmm. bit of science that you want to do?
1: So for, it's it's not about my hardiness. I'm I'm a regular person. I'm no different to Joe Blogs on the street, uh, and Phoebe will say the exact same thing. The truth is, it's about showing people that regardless of where you've come from, she was told as a kid that um, women from her part of North Wales generally don't do anything uh, the the dolls, the dolls, what you're going to end up on. I was told the best I could hope for by my math teacher is a short prison sentence. So these are the things that we had against us in the beginning or, or against us when we started out. So we're showing people that actually two people from completely different parts of the world don't have to look alike. Don't have to be a male. Don't have to be, you know, strong. You don't have to be a superhero. You don't have to be must. You can do, you can take on a huge challenge and with some perseverance with some support, with some help, you can make it happen. And it's just been a real life example of that, um, of that saying, you know, you can do anything you put your mind to.
0: Let me finish up by just asking you mm-hmm. a question we've asked all of our guests.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Why does Antarctica matter to you?
1: Antarctica matters to me because we, we are lucky enough to live in an age where we can see our impending doom coming. We're lucky enough to live in an age where we can calculate cause or the effect uh, uh, the 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 cause and the effect. Uh, we're lucky enough to be able to calculate that if we raise temperatures by one degree, this will happen over the next 50 years. There's no reason why we shouldn't believe these calculations. And many of the calculations say if the Arctic melts and if Antarctica melts by X amount, we will have sea level rises by X amount. Um, I think it's important to me because it is the place that is changing. Um, one of the places that's changing most as a result of our direct action here on the planet um i think it's still this place that's still far away and still mythical and still uh uh, only reserved for the few i think it's still a place that is um you you don't believe it's there because it's so far away and it's so big and it's so unexpected and it's so uh, extreme um that you can't really quantify it you can't think about it properly it's just antarctica And I think if we can get people's heads around that and they can see the impact there, I think we'd go a long way to solving our climate issues.
0: Duane, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much.
1: Super pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening. A Voyage to Antarctica is brought to you by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust. To find out more about our guests, including photos and videos, head to our website at www.ukaht.org or follow our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages. If you enjoyed this episode, please do listen to part two of The White Continent, in which I'll be delving further into Antarctica's colonial history and discovering more untold stories of the continent with historian Dr. Ben Madison. This podcast is part of the Trust's Antarctica in Sight programme, supported by the Arts Council England, the Garfield Western Foundation and the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office. A Voyage to Antarctica was presented by me, Alec Jha and produced by Jessica Norman. Ben Hewis is digital producer and the music and sound design is by Alec Hughes. See you next week.